0: Hey Andy, how you doing? Hey Jed, great to see you. You too, really looking forward to today's conversation. This is a a really great lineup we have here.
1: I know, we survived one guest. Mackie went easy on us, so we decided why not try two. We've got two good ones. We'll introduce them here in just a second, but we should probably do a little bit of housekeeping first because you're about to head off on just a fantastic journey.
0: Yeah, so I'm gonna take a month and a half to do the Camino in Spain. And I may send a post or two when I'm just so bored and and my shoes and my feet are too sore. But as far as recording wonky folk, not really a possibility. But I hope, Andy, you might have a couple of good guests and and can keep the thing going in my absence.
1: Yes, I think we're going to do that. We'll have a couple of guests. And so keep an eye out for for a couple of wonky folks while Jed is gone having that great adventure. And then he will be back and Obviously, the first segment back, the first part we'll be hearing about this really amazing trip as I, the Bible, I think, tells us not to be envious, but I am a little <laughs> envious, uh, I have to say, of this of this trip that you're taking. It sounds just amazing.
0: It's a promise we made to each other eight years ago when we did the final third with our kids. And we didn't even know if our life would work out such that we can do it, but we're just so grateful that, in fact, it is the case.
1: So, so we're going to have a great time. Um, yeah, I'm super happy. We won't subject readers to or listeners to another listening to us talk about how sad it is to be empty nesters for another 25 <laughs> minutes and weep about that. But I'm super, I'm super excited that you can that you can do that. All right, so why don't we then get on to uh, our guests? We have two fantastic people. We've been talking a lot about sort of education politics and what's happening. And so we've got two people literally on opposite sides of the coast. Although one of them works nationally, and one of them works particularly in Oakland who I think are just going to be great. So without belaboring it, our guests are Lakeisha Young from Oakland Reach and Heather Harding from Campaign for Shared Future. And Heather, you are in Washington, D.C., right? Today?
2: I am. So Absolutely. we got both coasts
1: covered. We got, we, with both hosts and guests, we got East and West Coast covered. And we're so excited that you guys are here and y'all could make time. Thank you so much. Great to have you here. Um, Can you want you guys I assume you guys each know yourselves better than Jed or I know you so why don't you (laughs) on that theory why don't you each quickly introduce yourselves talk a little about your work and how you got to doing this work now.
3: I guess I'll start. There we
1: go.
3: We'll start. <laughs> it's not too much. I will latest. start on the, I,
1: I will say on the theory respectfully. Oakland is cooler than Washington, D.C., so you get to start. I'll jump
3: in. I'll <laughs> leave that for a
1: different conversation. <laughs> um, Oakland
3: is struggling right now, so why I love my city. My name is Lakeisha Young. I'm the founder and CEO of the Oakland Reach. How I got to this work is really around this idea. Like My family's from deep south Mississippi, Jim Crow, Mississippi, and my grandparents had elementary. My grandmother had a ninth grade education before she became a mom. and But my family really grew on the dream of their sort of the next generation having, getting access to a better education. And so I really got, I really had access to a great education coming up. in San. I was born and raised in San Francisco. We lived in the housing projects for probably the first eight or nine years of my life. And then we moved around the corner from the projects. And I got to see That contrast right between this like elite private school that I was attending, the friends I was making, and living in the neighborhood I lived in, but was able to learn early on that education truly is an equalizer. It doesn't matter where you start. If you get a great education, you can pretty much choose where you finish. And having that, that pathway has allowed me to one, do so much for my family as someone who's been, quote unquote, formally educated. But it's also, I'm a mom of three. My daughter's going to be a junior in college. I have a high school senior and an eighth grader, so a big year for us. But it's definitely put them on a pathway where education is important. And I think finally, it's where my connection to the work comes from. It's why I do this work is because I know that no matter where you come from, if you can get access to a good education, you can rewrite your family tree. So that's a little bit about me.
1: Terrific. And Heather, why don't, why don't you go and then we'll dig a little bit deeper on on both those stories and, and your stories and what you bring to the work. But Heather, tell us about, I mean, tell us about how you got
2: here. It's so wonderful to hear, um, I've, I've known and had the opportunity to work with Lakeisha a little bit, but it's also lovely to hear like the resonant themes and stories. I'm Heather Harding and I'm the executive director of this national campaign called The Campaign for Our Shared Future. Uh, I am a mother of two school-age children, and I've spent the totality of my career in K-12 education. Some would call it education reform. <laughs> um, but as Lakeisha was talking, uh, I was thinking one of the reasons that I've come to lead this uh, campaign is because uh, watching the political theater unfold in school boards throughout um, the pandemic and the closing uh, of schools, uh, and now um, these so-called culture wars. I recall sitting on the floor in the back of a school board meeting, my mother, who was a single mom, very engaged in community, decided to run for school board and won a seat. And so this access to public education is so much a part of how we become successful adults and have careers and connect with our sense of our American identity. That's what brings me to this work now
1: one of the things i really like about those intros is you both went to the why not just the what but the why which is really powerful let's just start with you i, I one of the things like i started obviously oakland has like just a fascinating history on education a good history in some ways with empowerment and a bad history in other ways and you know, it's the only community that i'm aware of where a, a school superintendent was was assassinated politically i mean there's just a lot it, it's a complicated place and So it's something if you follow education professionally it's a place you follow but a few years ago i really started paying attention closely with the reading the you had like local groups work you guys were doing the p others were like way before sort of the science of reading became a thing we're getting serious on okay like reading instruction here is not working for kids they're not being prepared we need to change that and it was a parent-led movement to do that so can you talk a little bit about the reading piece and then how it got to what's going on today, obviously, with the strike that recently concluded and so forth? Tell us, tell us a little bit of the Oakland story the last decade or so.
3: We're seven years. It's seven years for me. So we're not quite at a decade, but I'm glad you asked about the literacy piece, because even though the nation is having a much larger conversation around the science of reading, We were doing this five, almost five years ago, and it really came from families. So families have already known that the roof is on fire. We had just come off of a campaign back in 2019 called the Opportunity Ticket, which I think is an interesting policy right now because it's about low enrollment needing to consolidate um, or close schools. And our policy was essentially that if you do close schools, families from the closed schools should get priority enrollment in any district school um, of their choosing, right? That policy was unanimously um, approved on March 5th. And then probably a few weeks later, we started asking our families what was keeping them up at night about their kids' education. And we went into that question with a pretty blank slate, not imposing any sort of responses. And I think from probably close to 80% of our families, it was something around literacy. It was my kids not reading on grade level. I have no idea what level my child's reading on. And I'm not getting a lot of help from the school. So we all looked at ourselves at the Oakland Reach and said, our parents care about literacy. And I think it's interesting when you think about it, because, you know, so much of the like, we have all these buzzwords in the quote unquote ed reform space and like quality education is one. But if you get down to the like, the brass tacks with families, you're going to get to stuff like reading and math. That's what it means for them. It doesn't mean access to a high quality education. It means I need my kid to read and do math. And so when they said literacy, they were putting a real specific like hook onto what they cared about and the rest is history. To Andy's point, this ended up leading into a citywide campaign with over 30 organizations with ourselves and the NAACP taking the lead because obviously the outcomes amongst African-American kids were the worst. And by February, I think it was February 12th, 2020, a month before the pandemic, we had gotten our district to, again, I think we we're one of the few folks who have unanimous policy approvals, even with board members who didn't like us, which is, is funny in itself. But we, we, we essentially got the board to unanimously approve a policy to move to the science of reading. And we had all of these activities planned after that. We did not believe in just like policy for policy sake. We needed to make sure implementation of like best practices, bringing everyone together. We brought the charter folks, CMOs and the district together because we're like, look, black and brown families are choosing both and folks are got to work together. Like our families don't care about that kind of stuff. Let's work together. And then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit a month later we were in an interesting place and that place was that even though we had these policy wins honestly i was still feeling some pain in my gut around like how much have we really gotten done Yeah, people were like, oh, this is great. You guys had the opportunity ticket policy. Now you have literacy for all. But honestly, y'all, I got in this work to be able to count how many kids could read. Like we got in this work. And it's so I couldn't, I really couldn't escape the feeling of, are we really having impact? And so when the pandemic hit, we realized that although we were in the middle of a health crisis, certain barriers had been removed as well. So one of those barriers was the constant battle between our teachers union and our district. Right. Kids being in brick and mortar buildings means that dynamic plays out with our kids every single day and with the kids at home with their parents and with pretty much us having, in some cases, better access to families than the school did. Right. Because our parents are are the ones changing numbers the most. They're not calling the school and saying, here's my updated cell number, but we're bumping into them at the store or if they get their phone cut on, they call on us because they know we got their back. Right. And so we were like, let's use this as an opportunity to build the model of excellence that we've been fighting the system to move towards. And that's when we got to our virtual hub. And that literally has changed the DNA of our organization because whereas we have the advocacy and policy chops, being innovators and solutions builders have allowed us to bring both of these together to really like increase impact. And so obviously what we saw during the hub days of which we ran the hub for about two years, but at the very beginning, in the midst of the beginning of the pandemic, our kids in the first five weeks, 60% of the K through two students went up two or more reading levels on the district wide assessment and 30% went up three or more. And, and this is all kids who are just getting, families are just getting internet access. Less than 50% of our families had reliable internet access or like computers versus iPads and kin- things like that. And they killed it. And it was just a reminder, a couple of big things came out of that. One, it was a reminder that it's not the kids, it's the adults. And we actually did all this work with paraprofessionals, folks who had been tutors. So we were like, wait a minute. We can actually close um, some gaps with our kids with folks who look like our kids and come from the communities. Obviously, I will have more to share later, but that's probably a good place to stop.
1: Yeah, let's pause there. But I want to stay with you for a second and bring in Heather. Then bring us up on because it wasn't all. Everybody was working together. It was all unanimous. Then you had this strike, which has been interesting. This is yeah. This is more recent, right? Yeah. So like talk I mean, about that because that I think the strike is is a lot of people. In the sector of paying attention, it surprisingly got almost no national attention, which, given the dynamics of it, was fascinating. So quickly talk about that, and then I want to, I think that's a good pivot to to the work Heather is trying to do in communities.
3: Yeah, and let me know if there's anything particular about the strike that you want me to speak to. Obviously, we are going along our merry way, building the solutions, getting folks in the schools to teach kids to read and do math. That's what I wake up every day to do. But... Oakland has a history around the striking stuff. So that's why I'm not surprised why I didn't make national news. Cause it's like the boy that cries wolf all the time. Right. It's like we've had three strikes in a year. So I can see people looking and be like, oh, there go Oakland again, having another strike. Right. But what ended up happening with us as we were the outspoken voice, I think it was very shocking for folks to see parents be so loud and outspoken against the strike. But see, that's what happens when you're building stuff, stuff working. You've actually activated families and parents from the community who are stepping in. We've got parents who are like raising their hands and like, I'm coming in, put me in a game, coach. Teach me the curriculum. Teach me what I need to do. I'm coming in and I'm working with these babies. So we're doing that work every day. Now you want to come and snap and shut down schools? Oh no, we about to act up. And that's really where that anger came from, which is, we are tired. The union has a lot to, they say a lot about what's happening on the backs of black and brown kids. No, 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 what y'all doing is on the backs of black and brown kids. Cause I promise you during that strike, white privileged families got to choose what they wanted to do. Okay. They either crossed the picket line or they ran these little separate strike schools of which teachers attended. We have a primarily Asian school where they maybe were out for a couple of days and then they're quietly started going back into their schools. But if you came down to the flatlands of Oakland, it was like a ghost town. Families were just not showing up. So who actually suffered? On whose backs was this really on? That really, and then we lost eight days. Nobody won. I will tell you, though, and I'll say this last part of why us being so outspoken. We weren't able to stop the strike. But what we were able to do is shift the narrative around how harmful the strikes were. And even though there's been this narrative that, like, we have to strike to actually get fair pay, we were able to really bust through that narrative and show that they actually had more money on the table three days before they had the strike than what they signed on to. And it just, if you were in Oakland, I must've did 30 interviews, right? And then parents were writing op-eds. It just became an energy. We had Dan Borenstein, who's one of the editors for the East Bay Times. He did a couple of really damning narratives. You didn't see that in 2019. In 2019, everybody was get along to get along, and I promise you, as long as I'm doing this work, we will never again go back to any other narrative around striking than harm. And the fact that we're able to show that the negotiations are not yielding any better results as a result of striking, right? I think people are going to be ready to go if, if this happens again. So, talk so that
1: about, is yeah. Talk about that. That's so that from the cheap seats back here in the east two things looked really weird about the strike in Oakland. One was we, we have across the country parents who are trying everything they can to get away from public schools. And that's a metaphysical crisis for the public schools. And yet in Oakland, you had these parents who basically they liked the direction things were going. They wanted their kids in school. So it was essentially the parents were like pro-public education. They did, the, the The demands the district was basically willing to meet. There was an agreement on the table. It almost seemed like a performative strike. And the final offer wasn't much different. So the kids lost a lot. The teachers didn't get a lot. And it tore up the community. At least that's what it looked like from the East. And correct me if if those things aren't right. And then also, Gavin Newsom is obviously itching to run for president. that, it's At least, again, from the cheap seats, it looks like every time that guy looks in the mirror, he sees the president of the United States staring back at him. And What was his it was a moment for some leadership because again, (laughs) Oakland kids are out of school. What was his role in this whole thing?
3: Let me make some a couple corrections or or, because you've hit on three points. So the first point was who's running to and from public schools, right? So I do want to correct that, right? Because it's just really not that game for our communities. Like parents want convenience and quality. When you got money, you get to buy a house in a neighborhood where the school's close. And if it's a district school, then you get to say, I'm a public school parent, right? If you live in our neighborhoods, you're doing the exact same thing. You're trying to get convenience. You're hoping to get quality and you tend to not get, either. you get convenience, but not quality. And that's the game. Like we don't have parents who are necessarily running away from public schools, but we have most of our parents really don't. They want the convenience of getting their kid to a school that's nearby. And that often means their district schools. Our geography has been built up to be close to district schools versus Charter and others. So I just want to share that, like, for black and brown families, that's not what they waking up every day thinking about. But when parents know more or have had a terrible education background in Oakland, you will start to see them exploring other options like charters, like um, even private schools or honestly better district schools. Most of our parents try to go after better district schools because they remember when those schools were inaccessible to them way back when. So I just want to correct there. And then the second one, when there was a second point you made, Andy, before you got to. It, and Gavin, it seems like
1: at the end of the day, the teachers, the point you were making, they ended up with roughly the same. It didn't seem like a yeah. strike, like yielded substantial gains for the teachers in the end of the day. It's it yielded yeah, think- losses of time for the kids, but it didn't transform what was on the table.
3: Yeah. And I think with that, yeah. And I think with that highlight was like, this has probably always been the case. So in 2019, nobody was looking under the hood and saying, what is on the table? The minute that it's this monolith, like group think that like to support teachers, you need to support a strike. And so no one was looking under the hood and saying, what is the offer on the table? But because families are so exhausted, upset, scared, frustrated about how much school their kids have missed, especially if your child was in kindergarten during the pandemic, that's forcing people. So we had our reasons for pushing back against the strike, but we were also talking to parents, privileged parents in the hills. Who were like wait a minute my baby was in this kindergarten first grade when the pandemic hit like they have barely had a normal school year that starts to get people looking under the hood and when we looked under the hood we start to realize that right what the district did was pretty much fair and i'm gonna tell you guys this it's probably been like this every single book negotiation, that what the district is offering ends up being better or, or really close to what the teachers union is putting on the table, but then we still are subjected to a one-week strike. And guess what, you guys? The damages, we, have, we haven't we have even done the reckoning, right? So we are about to face, we missed instructional days. Sacramento City Unified received, I think, a 50-something million dollar like bill for not making their instructional days. Our chronic absenteeism went up. Our ADA went down by 4% besides the loss. So it was just really bad. And then if you're asking about Newsom,
1: Yes, yeah, so with all this union, going on, where was the where was, Newsom
3: the was nowhere to be found? It's his, <laughs> it was Tony Thurman, who's also really backed by the union. He was like coming to the negotiations. So there was a lot of um, news about him trying to help him negotiate. You don't bring the guy in who's been completely endorsed by the unions to come and endorse the <laughs> mediate. A union and district thing. So you can tell how successful that was. Newsom was pretty quiet, but to your earlier point, Andy, he's got bigger um, aspirations. And those bigger aspirations, we're going to see how those aspirations play out. In a little bit, we're going to start to get into this parent power thing and how different it looks on one side of the country or another. And I always wonder, how is Newsom going to align himself to parents as he begins to take on a bigger stage, because in other states, parents are not playing, they are showing up and impacting politics in, a, in an extreme sort of way. So it'll be interesting to see how he evolves around unions and parent power in the coming year or so.
1: We'll come back. We'll come back to that. I think that's a great pivot over to Heather. Heather, talk about, because the whole parent power plays in the background of some of the work you're doing. So talk about, you're working around the country, talk about what the campaign's doing and how it fits into some of the issues that that we pointed out with Lakeisha, talking about what's happening in Oakland.
2: Yeah, so first I want to say, we have good polling on this now that K-12 public education is in the hot media cycle. The majority of parents want access to A high-quality public education, just as Lakeisha named, like this convenience and access to quality, they need to be synonymous. And we know that systems have really struggled to do this forever and ever, and for historically marginalized groups, even worse outcomes. So that's not really an issue, but that doesn't mean we don't all deserve access to a public education that we can get to with relative convenience. And so I, I think that's the first thing. And I don't think that there's any poll that would say parents, families don't want that across whatever geography. So I, I think that's important to note. I was also just listening. I think Lakeisha said Does it doesn't why should you have to support a strike or an intervention in getting your schooling in order to support teachers? And I think that's a really important and profound point because as I said, I've been in K-12 my entire career. So 25 plus years, almost 30. I know I look young, but the truth is it's always been a dream of mine that we have engaged families and parents working together to support educators and vice versa. And here we have it in the worst way, because it's focused on political aspirations to animate a base of extremists. It's not like it's it it seems so problematic because if we were focused on helping children read and learn how to compute, it feels like we might be able to work some more things out. So I am concerned, like, why do we care what Gavin Newsom is doing as a politician to bolster his career or any politician in the mix, as opposed to really thinking about what are the teaching and learning concerns that families have and how do we work together to solve those so our campaign is about our shared future how do we dial down the political rhetoric or the ideologically divides that of course exist in a multiracial country and democracy and how do we bring people to the table to have that conversation on our campaign we focused at least in 2023 on local school board because Almost 30,000 school board race seats get decided in 2023. Everybody was all raw about the midterms of 2022. And we'll be back in full force in politics for the presidential in 2024. But I venture to ask, like, Lakeisha, doesn't it matter who sits in those local school board seats in terms of both negotiating on contracts, but also what the curriculum offers to kids? So I think those issues are really important. And as a campaign We're trying to help people bring those issues back to the fore.
1: And how are you doing that? Like, give us almost like the user experience, if you will.
2: Yeah, um, we're a national campaign and we do four things. We uh, focus on policy tracking and analysis so that we know when there's a bad policy adopted, either mostly at the state level, we saw this sweep the nation that does a couple of things, just punishes educators for doing their job, makes decreases access to a fair and accurate inclusive curriculum or telling of U.S. history, and three, has fines and limits access just to come to school. And so we're tracking that kind of stuff. One, we can help elected leadership devise policies that don't do those things, but that get at the issue that maybe families uh, or other people are raising. Secondly, we think that it's important to speak directly to the public uh, about what it is that we're doing, not in jargon, so we do polling and messaging so that we can better understand the concerns of families across the divide all inclusive so are we talking about jargon or are we talking about something that is actually harmful for kids so the co-opting of critical race theory is something um, that parents need to be worried about or social emotional learning is indoctrination maybe it's the jargon that people don't understand Uh, and political operatives have hijacked that language. So we do some polling and messaging work. We work with field and organizing groups in local and state communities that are already engaged in supporting parents and families and what they said they need to be an authentic representation to speak to leaders. And we do that both by raising dollars, but also providing training and support and connecting them across the issues. Because the political theater ramped up so quickly, and because there was a lot of misinformation, uh, we really want families uh, and parents to have access to what their schools are actually doing um, to weigh in and to solve problems at the local level. So that's what the campaign is up to. Um, we're time bound. So we're not an organization that needs to have a long-term legacy or exist forever. Um, we hope this problem will recede. And we're working to do that. And then we're also nonpartisan. So we don't care if you're a Republican or a Libertarian or a Democrat. What we care about is if you are concerned about supporting young people in meeting the dreams of their families and that public education should help them get there. So we didn't see another type of entity like that in the face of these threats to public education. So that's what we're up to. So let me chime in here
0: on just... Theory of action and power dynamics, especially as it relates to urban education. I'm in California. I'm in Sacramento. Heather, if you didn't know that, close watcher of the Oakland races, close watch of the financial dysfunction within the school district that in some of these small schools, literally the district is on record spending Thirty-five, forty thousand dollars $40,000 per student because there are so many, so few students at these campuses and people don't think about how that's siphoning money away from absolutely every other student in the district. Um, people not really thinking about his, what's great about Washington, DC and Oakland being on the line at the same time is very comparable, uh, unique circumstances. And Oakland has the hills and it has the plains. Uh, it has affluent people in the same school district and Washington, D.C. has wards seven and eight and it also has Georgetown, right? And we have a history of these school districts choosing to put more resources into Georgetown, into the Oakland Hills, right? We've had these uh, a, a, a history of these districts uh, using redlining attendance boundaries to protect the areas in the Hills and in Georgetown, right? And so the question is, uh, and yet the, the power dynamics are such that the teacher union has so much power. They're, the idea that we're going to win school board races in Sacramento right now, or we're going to win in Oakland right now, or we're going to win in Los Angeles in 10 years of working in the Charter School Association, it was, come on, guys, over and over again. Come on, let's do it. There is a base large enough within the charter school world. We can be a counterweight, blah, 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 right? And there's just a feeling, I think, in some that you may be able to sustain that for a while, but ultimately the underlying dynamics are so skewed Toward the union's point of view, and they're going to win the school board elections over and over again. That it becomes very difficult to bet on parent power being something that can be the game changer. So, what's your latest thinking on all this as the next chapters of political dynamics are playing out?
3: I would love to say Keisha has to her hand in. up. To
2: jump in, yeah. Go ahead. Please, Lakisha,
3: yeah. Yeah, I got to push on this a bit. First, what I want to push on is you got to decide what you're trying to win. And I find that, you know, when I sit at the table with ed reform folks, they're so focused on moving systems that they forget about the people in the systems, right? We're right here sitting in Oakland, which is one of the most challenging cities, but we're getting some of the most like growth and results and folks who don't even have to deal with this so then you have to ask yourself how do we get there one is you got to decide what you're trying to win so for us the school board is like a non-factor really they don't make decisions on curriculum they don't make decisions and decide like how our kids get to read and do math And if anything, they're in the way. So we don't deal with the school board, right? We deal with the superintendent and her team. But the reason why we get to do that is because we actually built a solution that's allowing us to be at the table. And then we've actually brought our parents to the table. I wanna be clear, we cannot let white moms form of parent power be parent power, okay? When a mom or where a parent and a caregiver from Oakland becomes a math and literacy tutor, that's parent power in our communities because that's the issue we're battling. So this whole comparison about what Virginia moms do and how they overturn governor seats, and that feels like, oh my God, we're in a whole different battle out here. And so you cannot compare the steps we take. So people may not feel that empowering parents to be able to to teach and read reading and doing math building assets self-reliance and agency in our communities that can never be taken that's power so i I just want to challenge us a little bit about figure out what you're trying to win because i feel like with the charter movement and some of these other ed reform pieces it's so focused that we have the toughest teachers union do you understand that these folks are really not a problem most of the time, do you know why? Because they don't care about teaching and learning. So anything that we are doing around teaching and learning, we don't ever have issues with the union. We only have issues with the union when they try to get in the way of teaching and learning, which typically happens around negotiations. So when you say they have so much power, you're giving them more power, right? They don't have that much power in the day-to-day of our, of what we're doing when it comes, they don't put anything in the contracts around, curriculum, like none of the contract stuff has anything to do with educating our kids, right? So I just want to really push us a a little bit. I was thinking about this before the call is figure out what you're actually trying to win for our communities. Because I think that like what we're trying to win for our own communities has us positioning ourselves very differently around what feels like these like big boulders like school board elections. I would never encourage a parent to join a school board. And I'm going to re- repeat this again. I would never encourage a parent to join the school board. Why? Because why would I put that kind of burden on a mama who's already got a ton on her plate in the hopes that by her taking up one of seven seats on a board that she's going to be, I'm, I'm moving her further away from her power than closer to her power. Because the power is the privilege to have the system working without you being burdened right? That's the flex, that's the win. So every day that I wake up, I'm like, how do I make sure we turn in poverty into privilege? It's not a privilege for you to be on the board. They've given you $800 a month so that you can stay on board meetings till midnight, having people email you. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds like a lot of power. It is not. That's not what our parents signed up for. So I just want to put that out there as we start thinking about how we're training parents to be on school boards, White mamas in Virginia have a different kind of privilege to make those choices than black and brown mamas in our communities. And my responsibility is to make sure they are burdened as little as possible. And when I ask them to do something, it's something where they keep an asset. They get to see the fruits of their labors. When they are going into our schools as paid tutors, they are building skills, They are teaching kids immediately, seeing that immediate playback, and now we're building assets in the community that can never be taken. So I appreciate you letting me speak on this because I feel some kind of way about the ways in which when white moms in Virginia do one thing, we start to try to replicate it on the other side, and that's just not the same battle that we have in our communities. We have some deficits and some barriers where we have to be real strategic around how we exercise our power, or we won't actually exercise any power.
1: So that points up, and that's fascinating. And that, Lakeisha, this points up a question. The interesting thing about, I will use Virginia, you brought it up as an example, like people tend to uh, reduce Virginia to what's going on as, as white moms. It's actually the politics are like far more complicated. We're seeing similarly complicated politics next door in Maryland. And so my question is, and and I think some of this stuff, for example, like the Moms for Liberty group in Tennessee that was going after some of the curriculum makes actually harder to teach reading because they were going after good knowledge rich curriculums, uh, curricula. Excuse me. So it can it can make it harder. But some of this stuff isn't necessarily. It, it's not. It, it, it the, the, the teach it, it's the teaching and learning agenda is more straightforward overall in terms of getting people on. It, it, some of this other stuff is more complicated. So the question, Heather, is if people aren't on the side of right then we're going to work against them. How do we decide in a, when, when you get away from these teaching, so, real core teaching and learning issues like science or reading and so forth, how do you decide on some of this other stuff? What is right and who's right? And in a really pluralistic, politically the, and otherwise diverse America, the, the, I mean, how do you, how do we decide?
2: So I think it's really just to double click on Lakeisha's points, which is that As a parent in Oakland, understanding them historically and what they need is where we want to lean in to having educators work with families and vice versa. Oakland Reach has a set of demands that reflect the needs of their most underserved community over time. They are very clear. And in every place, public education intersects with the economic uh, and the cultural norms of that place. Right. And so the focus on solutions here is really important, I think, to say. Now, I'm looking at it nationally and I'm thinking about common ground. So to be as inclusive because I want every American to have access to public education. So what that means is that in some communities, the school board might operate differently than our unique individual experiences of Oakland, Washington, D.C. I hear what you were saying, Jed. Makes total sense. I'm in Washington, D.C., My children have been at charter schools. We have, how hard would it, we all know this problem actually. How hard is it to get parent representatives on your local charter school board when you've got half of the LEAs in town needing a board and representation? And you put that burden on families that are already struggling, that doesn't make any sense. But in a state or in a locale where the school board is making decisions about whether or not my little children are going to see literature on the shelf, that represents their personal experience. I want a representative that can talk to me and make teaching and learning decisions that really matter. So I think this is more complicated than just one way or the other. The fact is that it's a public education, it's a public good, and what that means is that the public has to be engaged, but not in conflict, in collaboration. And yes, we are going to grapple with things, But I'm always reminded of the story out of Ohio last electoral cycle where they were having the debate over sports. And I think, are we going to solve this by politicians debating or creating sweeping legislative answers? No, we're going to solve it when the local mom and or dad sit down with the school and figure out what the right solution is. And what I see in so much of this political activity is it's theater. It's really not about teaching and learning. So how do we help prepare all of the parents and families across the country to engage with their local school district to ensure that they get what they need for their young people?
1: Keisha, it looked like you were about to say something.
3: Yeah, I'm really trying to figure out what is that you guys are talking about and how is it we are local, but we're talking to folks all over the country. And so I'm waiting to hear what is that thing that is so different or how Oakland is so unique because everybody we talk to, whether they're in rural North Carolina or in sort of urban districts, are fighting to do the same thing. The politics around it is different, right? And those conversations come up, but the North Star tends to be pretty similar. We have a national reading and math crisis in our country that's not unique to Oakland. So the question is that, how are we tackling that? And what we've seen is that our local solution is having a lot of national impact. We're actually about to bring 15 organizations which includes charters and districts and funders to Oakland who are really looking to learn how to cut through some of that performative theater which has been there since I've been and it's never going away because that's just what it is. Folks still realize that they have a responsibility to our communities. Our families wanna be brought in the most impactful way. So I'm like, I'm trying to take it all in and understand what is that what of what you guys are talking about in terms of what you want to give parents and particularly parents you know who are black and brown across different communities in our country. So I think, uh, Lakeisha, I,
0: I'd be curious just what your thoughts are about the degree to which there is reason for hope that Oakland Unified can finally evolve into something that would provide the kind of instruction in math and reading that that parents desperately want. I think that there is, from my perspective, just there's just generations now of experience to the contrary. And the hole is so deep that they're in right now, it becomes a challenge to have a vision for the future that holds together. Because maybe we can get some better reading practices going on But if next year the district is in complete financial collapse because state revenues have decreased, enrollment decline has happened, the the wanton Mm -hmm. fiscal mismanagement of the school district has made it impossible for them to, they're continuing to reject state bailouts. At some point, that dysfunction within the school district is going to have a degrading effect on whatever good practice we get in around science of reading or math instruction or something like that. Is there... So I guess what I I, I
3: go ahead, please. Yeah. So I love that question, Jed. I love it. Okay. So it goes back to what I said originally. We're not focused on Oakland Unify. We're focused on the liberation of our communities. When you are focused on the liberation of your communities, You go in multiple directions, right? So the reason why we've built the liberator model is because most families, especially black and brown families, and then you think about some of our most vulnerable kids, foster students and all of that, they pick district schools, right? So we have a model and a solution for that. But we're actually about to launch something else, which is a community-driven technology platform. And, Andy, we talked about this before, which is going to have a part of that platform be around school choice. And that school choice is going to give parents learning and understanding around other school options, right? So whether it's homeschooling, whether it's charter, district, private, right, what we recognize is when we focus on communities we build solutions to liberate our communities our parents need the full gamut of options in front of them but we're also pragmatic to understand that most of our families choose district schools so when you bring up this very daunting issue around the district understand that i wake up every day i'm not trying to serve the district see the district changes because the people change the district. You don't change it from here. You change it from the people in the in there. And so by equipping the mamas and the grandmamas to be these tutors, you now have a more educated student body, right? And now you have a better district. That's where we go. But with that being said, like change takes quote unquote, they, I take this back. They say change takes time. It takes as much time as you want it to take. Some families are like, I don't have time to waste. I have given my whole multiple generations of my family to a system that doesn't work. So the reason why we're building this solution that will actually launch in the winter is because liberation is about having access to all of your options. Like we saw across the country, almost an 18, 20% increase of homeschooling amongst black families. Many, we, we live in a state where kindergarten is not even required. So we have kids who are going into kindergarten who are not even like sounding out letters and things of that nature. What if their families knew that there was some out of box homeschooling option that they could be using that then either they stay homeschooling their kids or bring them into the public school system. So that's where REACH is working from. We're working so deeply from the place of liberation, that it pushes us to build multiple solutions. That's why we have literacy and math, because unfortunately, our country is just catching up with literacy while math keeps getting further behind. And there's a lot of research that says that like, long-term life success for Black kids is actually determined around their proficiency in math than it is in literacy. So when you say that, Jed, I really welcome that question because it is about both and. Yes, we have this model that we're moving and building at scale because so many of our folks in our communities are in our district schools, but we don't like that our families don't have the options. And those options, honestly, in a place like California have to extend even beyond charter schools. They cannot just be district and charter schools because Oakland, the charter schools are only doing a little bit better than the district schools. May not be the case in other cities, but that's how it is in Oakland. So we really want our families to have access to all their learning options that are both within the district and and outside the district. So Jim, my best response is that we don't focus as much as how do we move this big bureaucratic clunky thing we focus on how do we move the people most impacted around through under and in between this big clunky thing and then how do we help them not deal with the clunky thing if they need something else and that's how the change is going to come from the people not from a savior place up here where we're trying to move things that's never going to happen right and i'm sorry it's like when we actually try to move from this place we do more harm to the communities that we serve, because we don't give them actually any power to move things where they sit.
1: For Heather, themselves how, you, how for would you families. respond to Lakeisha's question? Because I feel like this is like a really fascinating part of the conversation because it's these two different theories of action. Like Lakeisha said, what is this national stuff actually doing and what is, it, what is it talking about? And so as you are digging in on these big political issues, like how would you respond to the, the exact question that that, that that she put forward a second ago?
2: I think you'll need to restate the question but I, I think as LaKeisha said earlier too this is not so we're a campaign that's responding to what we perceive as an attack on public education we're not a local organization to come up with solutions and part of what i'm trying to say here is that the oakland reach is a great example of when you have a local solution that is encouraging both demand on the system but also collaboration to come up with solutions for the families that need it if we have state and national political theater actions, that can get in the way of being able to build a functioning local system to engage. And for me, the question is, what are the real threats? Are the real threats that public schools have the resources and designs to indoctrinate and undermine family values? Is that a concern that we've had, all four of us, in the last 30 years of trying to improve the opportunity for kids to learn to read and compute. And so I'm simply laying out that as a, like a a real issue to me, when I talk to people across the country about getting kids back to school, about ensuring that we can override what are increasing, uh, actually enduring teacher shortages in important areas, not everywhere, uh, but also to make up for the lost time of schools closing. Is it this culture war frame work, or is it a focus on the, the, the three R's. So no 22-year-old wakes up tomorrow and says, "Hmm, I just saw people screaming at the superintendents and teachers. I think I want to go be a teacher. We are going to box ourselves into this environment where we're not going to be able to recruit folks into the into the profession. We're not gonna have the kind of literature that encourages young people to persist, to learn how to read, which is very hard. We're not gonna have places where folks can show up and think that they have the opportunity to collaborate. In fact, they're gonna think they're supposed to come and scream and yell at each other if we believe the media narrative. So for me, it's like, where should these problems get solved? At what level? And who should be at the table? Uh, and I think what we're seeing nationally is again, an act, or the perspective of a pretty extreme minority yeah. that we don't need. In but they've the always been of there. It.
1: I guess I see it a little differently. Since I've been doing this work, there's always been the attack on public education, quote unquote, and that's there. But even today, most school board meetings are sleepy affairs where nobody pays attention. There's nothing going on. Right. The the media. It's, it's, it's like when a hurricane hits. They don't show footage of all the houses that weren't touched. They find the one that's got a tree through it. It's the sa- it's, it's the exact same thing happens with coverage of, of school boards. Most of them, even through the midst of all this, when you look at these reports, it's like, it's actually, this is happening. It, it, it's much less frequent and, and, and prevalent than, than people think in social media it screws us up. So I guess I see it a little differently in that I will say I think public education, some of this rather than an attack over the last five to 10 years, like a lot of self-harm, if you will, uh, and self-inflicted wounds, like public education has it has lost in in some ways the confidence of parents in different ways. And I think that's why you you have this vacuum politically that really like I don't know, 10-15% of people on either side have rushed into to have all these fights. And if you look at the polling, I know you look at the polling, Heather, mm-hmm. like. 70% of people, they agree on this stuff. They just, they're not. And we're all getting dragged along for a ride by like the 30%, some of whom have managed in, in different cases, in different ways to exert a lot of leverage on the public education establishment and throw them off course. So I guess I see, I don't know, You're. I can't tell if you're pointing at me, Lakeisha, because you're upset or you agree. <laughs> no, I'm
3: just saying you just hit on something that if I think I'm hearing you right, right before you said it, I was thinking, why can't, why are we so scatterbrained? like why don't we just focus a little bit right so the reason why i'm putting what i'm putting in the chat is that we may be local and we and i'm good with being local and come up with a local solution but it has a demand nationally and the demand nationally is because it's not just a local problem and it's not necessarily the ability or responsibility for national organizations to come up with solutions for local things it can be local and all of a sudden, next thing you know, a million students are impacted because these folks are coming to the table learning. So I just wanna put that in. Andy, the other thing I wanted to bring up around this is that what I've seen even on the past six months is like a lack of focus. We are smart people right? And what we focus on expands. And we've expanded confusion, right? We won't focus on literacy. You math. guys
1: are smart people. I can't speak for me and Jed. I don't know. I think you guys are you smart can. people.
3: <laughs> That's why we like, have these guests. But every new thing that pops up, so with the book bans, I'm of course against book bans, but when you're here on the ground, you realize that our biggest issue right now is not book bans. It's the fact that our kids can't read, right? And like, we're not focusing, we get, everything gets our attention. When they had the parents' bill of rights, then it was like a whole thing. And what I share with folks is that if you took the parents' bill of rights that McCarthy put a stamp on and you put it in front of our parents without saying what it was, they would agree with it. They would agree with it in a different context than moms in another state, but they would be like, yes, I have the right to know about the curriculum. Yes, I have the right to be notified about this context different, but foundation the same. But there'll be something else that we then jump to and focus on. And I'm sorry, you guys, but that means we have less warriors, less brains, and less focus on on the basics that our families, I'm just telling you that like, we may be doing a local thing, but there are many folks across the country trying to do that local thing too, and wake up every day feeling, dang, I got to figure out how alabama just passed the law right that if you can't read by third grade you're gonna get held back we've got birmingham folks coming this is what's happening and it's not a local thing it's a national thing that local people are trying to solve for so i think part of just what i'm pushing on is like it feels like a lack of focus or maybe people being 280 feet foot in the air or whatever but if we could get everyone to focus on these core things just imagine the well, yeah. we can make Also it's like really tribal, right?
1: Like, I, I like that. Like, I, also I get just- text
3: messaging calls, Andy, all the time. I know because we're going head on both building our model and trying to expose folks to it. And every time I turn around, I'm somebody's trying to distract me with the new education yeah. problem. And I've got to put it in its place and be like, okay, this thing matters. But what really is hurting our communities right now? Is it really this thing? Or is yes. it the thing that's pissing us off and we're
2: turning it to a bigger
3: thing? I would love your focus yeah. Over so here, the
2: distractive nature of it is a problem. And while I think, Andy, this we can find lots of areas of common ground. You referenced the 70%. That is true. And exactly what Lakeisha is voicing, that these local solutions, of course, they find demand everywhere. That's why we're so excited about connecting with people. But I do find it problematic if we don't answer the call to an extreme that's distracting us. Yeah. So if we care about learning to read... Yeah, it, it, I, I, again, if we don't, if we care about kids learning to read, we cannot have the majority of folks who are engaged focused on banning books. Makes no sense. But so you've got a, to come you know, together What if you work with
1: example them? Of this. When you dig down under these book bans, it is happening. There are places that are certainly doing it, but it's so I can much give you, less prevalent. Andy,
2: I could give you 20 emails that I got just in the last two weeks. Sure, but there's 13,000
1: school districts in this country. This is the problem. Like this stuff does distract, like the book banning. I started, I got curious about this and you started looking at, they said they were banning the Amanda Gorman poem and book in Florida and you dug under it. It wasn't. And even like the fact checkers like, yeah, that's not actually happening. But by that point it had gone around and Twitter had had its two days of everybody freaking out. I think some of this stuff is certainly happening. But I think our social media has completely skewed our sense of prevalence of how much it's happening. And so to it, it makes it harder to marginalize and be like, yeah, there are people who are like trying to ban a book about Ruby Bridges. That is a thing that is happening. It is also not, thankfully, super common. And I worry we're making it appear more common than, no, there are some people who want to do that. It's 2023. That's ridiculous. Let's move on and let's focus on these other issues. I worry that we like and and I mean, my own theory on this is part of it is post essa like at least during like common core is, as awful as some of the politics were there and stuff we were at least arguing about teaching and learning no child left behind we were arguing about teaching and learning and we've really had a vacuum for about a decade and it's getting filled with this stuff because we're not having in a lot of states and certainly not nationally like a real debate about teaching and learning or expanding school choice and charters or like just the kinds of things that people aren't going to agree on either, but at least it's not shadow boxing.
0: And I think it could get us really onto what Lakeisha, you were talking about before, because you're talking about like you're really talking about like parent agency. There, there are so many different places they want to do. They want to do micro schools. They want to do homeschools. Uh, they want to be, get charter schools. They want to have all their other forms of choice. Maybe they want to be able to transfer into a different uh, attendance zone. Maybe they want to be able to transfer into a different school district altogether. Piedmont saying that they're going to have uh, be accepting kids from Oakland. These are vexing vexing issues, right? These are vexing issues. And what specifically are we going to propose on them so that parents end up with a whole basket of new powers and and agencies that they haven't had before such that they can do, because we can talk about these things, but if, if parents don't have any money to do homeschooling, if they don't have any money to get the, the micro school right. going or whatever
3: the heck it is, it's just not going to happen for them in the way that's happening for all sorts of other and parents. In country. But for you know that, what, there's plenty that, of that. money out there. And so when I talk to you about this marketplace of this community driven tech solution, when all is said is done. And, and again, this is an ambitious necessary move on our part in Oakland. And hopefully again, it becomes another solution that, that grows. But for the first time in Oakland, we will know, what families want and need across a variety of things, right? What is the driver, right? And so if you go back to the homeschooling piece, I've been on panels with like Odyssey and other folks like that. I'm talking to a bunch of providers about how do you become a direct-to-service, direct-to-families model? When we were running our hub back in 2020, we helped, we went from four providers to 44 providers in our hub over a two and a half year period. And that was the freest, most liberated when our community saw the most gains with their kids was during that time. But unfortunately there's all of these solutions being built, right? But they're all trying to move this through our districts that is clunky and bureaucratic. And so part of building the marketplace is when the demand is there, if the demand is there, Jed, for homeschooling, how are you then connecting with those partners and saying, look, I've got 2000 families that want this. What are you willing to do? How are you willing to make this affordable? Because remember I told you, kindergarten is not required here in California, which puts black and brown kids at a huge disadvantage when they started school age. So it even makes our model, so once again, right? How do you move different levers to get to the same point? How do you give access to educational opportunities earlier on where the public school system doesn't allow it? But Jed, our parents are not waking up, unfortunately, every day with the hunger around give me all the learning options. Right. We're actually saying here are all the learning options and whether or not you decide to pick your school down the street these things are possible for you. Oh, and if you're gonna keep your kindergarten kid home, let's figure out a way that you can keep them home and they're actually learning and ready um, for first grade. So I'm just saying that like to Andy's point and Heather, I totally hear what you're saying as well. It's like, we gotta build shit, okay? Like at the end of the day, like we have this, we have a four step formula that we call ask, listen, build, liberate. And I tell folks, we we don't ask anymore. We keep surveying and asking our families so they can tell us the exact same things. We got to start building the solutions. So we have four solutions we're building at the same time, which lets you know that we're not attached to a thing. We're attached to liberation. We're attached to freedom and we're building the solutions that get our communities to the highest point of freedom. So I'll give this last example and pass it back to Heather. You asked a question earlier, Jed, around like how do we move these systems? What do we do with OUSD? So this liberator model, one of the things we did is we brought Serpi in. Yeah, this little local Oakland Reach group, we brought in our partner Serpi to do, they're doing a whole research study. The report's going to come out in October. But what this research study is already doing from the ground up is pushing the district around efficacy of tutoring that they were not even focused on until we brought the research in and now we're going to double down on it because we're going to use that research to talk about codification from recruitment to results but see how it's coming from the ground up and now our superintendents wait a minute yeah how are we thinking about our data tracking or monitoring evaluation now why that wasn't like i'm not saying people weren't thinking about that before but this stuff is coming from the ground up right like i, I was even telling serpia i'm like we brought you here oh <laughs> he didn't bring you here we brought you here and why we brought them there is because We are solutions builders and we don't fall in love with our solutions. We fall in love with the results of our solutions. And that's a different y'all fall in love with the thing you build in and forget to focus. And I'm not saying you guys in particular. It's a general statement because we're having I said, but we too often fall in love with the solution and we don't fall in love with the results of the solution. I don't care about a liberator model if it's not going to get kids to read. So all I do is tweak and turn and tweak and turn to make sure we're getting to results. So that's the thing I'm saying. It's like I'm asking y'all on the national level, what are we falling in love with? What is the prize we're trying to win? Because it feels very disconnected to what's happening with the families that we're supposed to be serving. They're just not getting up every day talking about this kind of stuff. They're really not, because you guys already know, Department of Justice came out with this. 70% of folks who are not reading by fourth grade, is they're gonna be on welfare in jail. So why are we talking about book bans? I'm not saying book bans don't matter, but we've elevated it to a level that is just not even normal for what we really need to do. And I'm just telling you what it does to folks like me. It means that I've gotta have another interview with folks to try to tell them, I get it, but guess what? Our kids can't read and do math. Can we focus on that, right? given our like our SIPS curriculum it's not super focused on like culturally affirming literature it will get there right or when we were working with reconstruction kaya henderson's platform was amazing because it did both it focused on kids reading but it was able to do so focusing on the african diaspora but it didn't substitute one for the other and that's what we find it's like we can't get the rigor and the focus and the culturally af- cultural affirmation at the same time. And I'm like, why not? We have to. So I'll, I'll
2: stop there, but that's that. I, I do wanna say, I think it's a mistake to underplay how much this political theater and cultural war stuff undermines people's ability to focus on the right solutions. And while you say it's 20 emails a week, but it's not a thousand districts, this is a growing concern and threat So we talk about it in terms of, there's legislation and policy moving, but there's a chilling effect. And the more time it takes up, and you cannot discount social media or the national media, people are influenced by that. And so real educators, folks who have credibility on the ground for having impact should be standing up and saying, we're not worried about that. We're worried about helping the babies read. Of course, we should have a book about Rosa Parks. Stop bringing that to the table. Of course, we should not be denying the Holocaust. We're not gonna talk about that. What I wanna make sure is that the kids understand how to decode, understand, analyze the text, et cetera. I'm not afraid of dissent. And I think part of what we, having this stuff go unanswered is a real problem. That does not mean that it's going to lead to the solutions that folks on the ground are trying to address. But one, we have to ensure that we do respond to crazy and that we too, Bring the take responsibility for bringing that conversation back around to what's important that's happening in schools. And I don't care whether it's one side or the other, because we all have kids and we all have dreams for our kids. Each one of us, you all said your parents, <laughs> we're all parents. We had dreams. We chose schools, public education, as well as other options to make sure our kids could get there. The vast majority of Americans rely on their public school option. And so if we see undermining public confidence in that, we are going to be in trouble long term. So yeah, I do want to, I want to, like, crazy. I want like, to give an example to, to I'll give an
1: example in like Virginia, that. like what, under the previous administration, there was a push to. They floated the idea we were going to limit the courses people could take in high school and, and, and limit your ability to take advanced cl- courses for equity. That was like, that's an example, Heather, if you want to erode confidence in public schools, parents went bananas. That was a factor in the election. That's what I just think. I think the through line as I see it is it, it goes back a little bit to location was talking about if you just showed parents some of this stuff, it didn't say it's Providence. They'd be like, Oh yeah, I agree with that. I think if you do the blind taste test a lot, both sides like you tell you you tell republican stuff and then you're like oh yeah this is something that joe biden or barack obama supports and there's the support drops and likewise you take charter schools are a good example you tell democrats that's like the donald trump and betsy devos support and there and the support drops the same idea which i think part of the problem is we've become so partisan and everybody has to have their sort of team and it, it goes to this idea of, of I, I forget how one of, one of you said it, but this idea that people aren't like engaging on the specifics of any of this, it's becoming signaling. I think that is what is killing us. And what's alarming to me is a number of these things, like you talked about Holocaust denial. Thankfully, it is so rare. Yes, there was like that guy in Louisiana legislature that was like, there's a lot of politicians and you're gonna find some, they talk a lot and you're gonna find ones who say crazy stuff. But I remember that whole thing in Texas, we were like, they're going to teach both sides of the Holocaust. It was absolute nonsense. But that didn't stop everybody from getting an all high dudgeon in the media. Like so many of these book things, there are 13,000 school districts in this country. And I just think we are losing our sense. And I agree with you, you can't let crazy take over. But you also there's a fine line between not doing that and just fueling crazy. And I do worry like we, we are all a little addicted to crazy right now and all this stuff that's happening again, both sides and it's, we're indoctrinating or we're, it's a genocide. And as leaders, I do think there's a role just to get everybody to calm down a little bit and focus on what matters, which is what's actually going on. What's the teaching and learning agenda. And I do think one, one place just, Lucas, I was struck. You said like the union doesn't, I do think. Often that's the case, but in some places, some of the conditions in these bargaining agreements really do matter to teaching and learning. And you've got the opposite problem nobody's paying attention to any of that, right? And everybody's like upset about Common Core, and no one's like reading. Here's this document that actually completely prescribes what's going to happen in your schools every day for five days a week that you should probably pay attention to. So I feel like we're it it, it it runs all ways, and as leaders, I think people just getting people to focus on the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing is, and not taking the bait uh, unnecessarily is really important. Jetty, but
0: exactly today. why we invited you guys on for this uh, discussion. <laughs> this is terrific. We can't resolve it all. No, right? but four a lot people of rowing in the
1: same direction. Yeah. also it's, it's, that's why we it, wanted to have you guys. And it's the it, 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 tough it, judgment
0: it, calls. But it's a moment when we're just being played and what is a moment where it's a substantive thing? And if we don't stand up and, and do the right thing here, it's it's another missing of our responsibility. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jay, can I just
3: possible. add one last piece and then yeah. we have to jump? You said something just really important right now that I had to say something to, which is how do we make those judgment calls? I would say that like an example of that is exactly what we did in Oakland. We made a judgment call around stepping away from our work for a second, or not really, but to respond to the teacher strike, because we saw that as a huge issue getting in the way of like student learning. And it was getting in the way of what we had really told our parents and caregivers about the type of influence that they were going to have on the education of their own children. But once it was done, we went back and we went back and focused everybody still came and was like oh we haven't seen parents do that can you guys do this can you now do this and i'm like no if it is not Like directly, so you see how it was already gonna start to, 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 so that's what I was just saying about, it's not easy work, but when you have a clear focus, you know, what to swat away, you know, when to step forward. So it's not, we're not responding. We were the only people in Oakland to actually respond to the teacher strike. But when it was done, we went back to business. And, and got back to the focus yeah. of like, our kids can't read and do math. And we did not let other people pull us into this performative to Heather's point of, ooh, how cool does it look to see black and brown parents get upset around the teacher's union? It's cool for about two weeks, but it ain't really cool at all because at the end of the day, our kids are not reading. So yeah. I just wanna share that is an example of being able to be nimble to both stay focused on the grounded solution you never walk away from, but sometimes you gotta stop and get with folks, but then you gotta get back. And I, just, I don't see us getting back. I see us because we don't have anything grounding us. So I will push for everybody to think about what is grounding you in this work so that even if you have to respond to things popping up, you come back to home base. What is your home base? And if your home base is Love just that. responding to everything, nobody's gonna survive that.
1: It's just not fun. I I like that, Lakeisha. I also think, and and this is a hobby horse of mine, Jed knows, we also, we have to be very clear defining terms and what are we actually talking about? These broad terms get, so like Heather, not to beat on the dead book horse, but like the group that tracks (laughs) this, they've expanded their definition of what constitutes a book ban. So it includes even like a book getting moved from an elementary school shelf in a school library to to a middle school school shelf, like that book's being banned. And and it's in a way that's strangely, and this seems like a weird thing to say, it's actually like good news. This is this is not a problem in the extent that a standard definition of book ban will allow you to raise money and media attention. So you have to expand it. We've seen that on other things where we're actually seeing measures of progress we would want to see. And so people like make the definition more expansive because that's what advocacy groups do. And I think we have to be very careful. The home base thing I totally agree with and, and being like laser like focus and then also just What's the definition? What are we actually talking about on these specific things? And I think that for public education is a big risk, because that's how the word like equity suddenly becomes completely under pressure and people and you're like, wait a minute, like we, you and I used to work together on fiscal equity. And now you're like, I'm against equity. It's, it's a real risk. And so I think it behooves all of us to be very clear. What are we talking about with these various things? And then Agreed. that home base point, I don't know. The last few years have been pretty frenetic and I just don't know the sector's doing a great job at that. Listen guys, it that was a great sour note. Leave yeah, a, leave us on a happy note. Heather, LaKeith, someone leave us on a happy note.
2: <laughs> There's a lot of support for public education. Families are paying attention. Politicians mm-hmm. take your hands off and put your money where your mouth is. I'll take that one. But I do believe strongly that we can have a thriving system We can have a multiracial democracy that has a public education system with lots of options uh, moving forward, but we need to make sure that we're defending the stuff that actually helps kids learn.
1: Terrific. Thank you both for taking time out of your day and out of your work to uh, to join us. Thanks so much,
2: guys. Thank you
3: so much for having us. This was great. Yeah,
1: absolutely.